Yeah. Yeah. So there's no 543 in our hymn books anymore. It's now 543. I thought she wanted to sing hymn number five, then four, then three. I thought she was making three requests, but apparently not. So that's okay. Revelation chapter eight tonight. Um, so when I originally scheduled this, one thing I do uh, from the very beginning um, when I'm scheduling out a sermon series, and obviously I'm doing that praying a lot, and I read through uh, the book that I'm going to be in, and I start writing down passages. And originally when I do this, I try to make a passage based on two basic things. First is what does the text look like? In other words, I don't want to cut off a story halfway in a sermon. But I also don't want to take like five stories and put them into one sermon. You know, it's just too much. So I try to get it to where there's a complete unit of thought. And as I began to um, focus in this week, I I looked and it it seemed pretty obvious. It's five verses. Okay, that's what I'm going to go with. Well, I started studying the passage um, for tonight. And my first thought was, how am I going to get a sermon out of five verses? I might need to prepare a little bit more. And then I thought, you know what? I can do this. I can make five verses last for for 45 minutes. And so tonight we're going to go for an hour and a half. And no, I'm kidding. But in all seriousness, um, as I began to study the passage, I realized why this is one unit, just five verses. Sometimes God puts so much into such a condensed space that you have to take it just a little bit lower than other things. Some things you can read a chapter or two chapters or three chapters um, and, and hardly even notice. Genesis is like that, where you can just read this large passage of Scripture and it's all one story and it all just seems to go together. But sometimes... God's saying so much in just a couple verses that you, you kind of have to pump the brakes, slow down, and let it all sink in. And this is, these are these kinds of verses tonight. So pardon my slower progress tonight. Um, but I think God has a lot to say. Revelation 8, verses 1 through 5. We've seen the seven, the scroll with the seven seals, and six of the seals have been opened. There's this interlude in chapter 7 where the 144,000 are sealed and where there's this great multitude wearing white robes that's praising God right before His throne. And then chapter 8 begins, When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with the golden censer and was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Father, as we read these verses tonight, may they impact us, not just our heads. May they dig deep into the depths of our hearts. May they change us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In Revelation chapter 8, 
we have the opening of the last seal. Now, think back with me to the first six seals. The first seal, there is this horseman who is going forth into the world to conquer it, riding on a white horse. This isn't the same horseman riding a white horse that we'll encounter later in Revelation. This isn't Jesus riding in. This is one who's riding in who perhaps peaceably makes conquest of the earth. When the second seal is open, there's a second horseman, a horseman riding a bright red horse, a horse signifying war. He goes out and war erupts on the face of the earth. When the third seal is open, there's a third horseman, a horseman who brings famine on a black horse. You know, famine often comes with war. And so it is the case with the third seal. The fourth seal is opened, and it's none other than death. The horsemen bringing death to those who are impoverished by warfare and famine. The fifth seal is opened, and the scene is not earth anymore. It's now heaven where the multitude of the voices of martyrs are crying out to God, when will you vindicate our deaths? When will you bring retribution for the price that we have paid? And God says, just patience. He gives them white robes and says, wait, there's more of you to come and then it will be time. The sixth seal is opened and boy is it a violent scene. The sun is darkened, the moon turns blood red, stars fall from the sky and the sky itself like a torn up scroll, rips apart and flies back to the sides. There's earthquakes. Mountains are falling down. Rocks crumbling around and people are begging God, begging the earth to crush them so that they might have respite from the wrath of God. What in the world could seal number seven be? If the first six seals are this bad, or are this detrimental, or are this full of wrath, and we're just beginning, what in the world could seal number seven bring? So all heaven waits with anticipation, sitting on the edge of their seats, leaning in closely to see what will happen next. And when the Lamb opens the seventh seal, can't imagine what that silence would have been like. Maybe it's the silence that you remember when you were a kid and you did something really, really dumb and your dad found out and he didn't say anything and you knew you were about to get it. Maybe it's the silence of all heaven waiting, listening closely. What is he about to read the scroll? What's in the scroll? What's to come? What, what is it? What, what does it say? Maybe it's the silence of realizing just what a somber situation this is. There's times when you know you better not speak out because this calls for silence. It gives new meaning to phrases found in the Psalms of let all the earth stand still before him. Be still and know that I am God. There's some times where there's nothing to say. The situation is just too great. I don't know exactly why the long silence. 
But compared to this drama where things seem to be speeding up and, and boy, is it going to move quickly after this. It's just silence. Nothing. Silence for about half an hour. Some scholars think that what's, what takes place in the next couple of verses happens during this silence. I, I'm not so sure. I almost wonder if heaven is awestruck at the mighty one, the worthy one who's opening that scroll, and at the way to realize just what this scroll is has so captivated the angelic audience that they can't say anything. They're enraptured by the drama to unfold. It's also a stark contrast because the first six seals were very active. And now the seventh, there's nothing left to do. It's time for God's judgment. Then I saw seven angels, verse 2, who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. So there are these seven angels who are standing in God's presence that are given trumpets. Trumpets are indicative of something. We've seen trumpets in the biblical narrative before. It's trumpets that announce the time to shout at Jericho. It's trumpets that are used to gather the people of Israel together. It's trumpets that are used to signal to other portions of the army, now your time, go. Go take the city. If you remember the story of Jericho, they walk around the city in silence once a day for six days. And then on the seventh day, they walk around seven times. And it's at the blowing of the trumpets that everybody lets out a shout and the walls come a-tumbling down, right? It's right after that at Ai, after they were defeated and they cleanse sin from the camp, they make a second go at Ai. So they take that portion of the army to go out and make it look exactly like it looked before. We're going to bring a few more men this time, but we're going to start to fight them and then we're going to run away, draw them out of the city so that two other parties are waiting behind the city and they can come around and ransack. The signal given is the trumpet. It's the trumpet that's used to announce the coming of a king. The trumpet that's used to proclaim that a great one is approaching. It's the trumpets that get your attention. And so it is the trumpets in the hands of these seven angels that will declare the judgment of God. Some people think these angels have made appearances before. Maybe these are the angels of the seven churches of Asia. Maybe these are angels that have been in the scene but have been in the backdrop somewhere. And now they step to the front to play their role. Perhaps these are seven new angels that we haven't seen yet. I don't know. Doesn't matter. They're serving God. That's, that's really the most important part. But their role is to declare judgment. So they are given the trumpets. They are standing there waiting to blow their trumpets. And as they're waiting, there's another angel. Verse three. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. Let's jump back to Exodus. If you're looking at the tabernacle, let's just assume that up there on the stage is the Holy of Holies. Okay? Okay? Let's kind of orient ourselves. So you're going to, when you walk in the temple, you're walking in through that way. Out in the outer gates was an altar on which the sacrifice would be made. Okay? Okay? 
There were a couple different altars, but that's, that's the main sacrificial altar is out there. Sacrifices are being made on there constantly. Priests are um, serving God. It's said, uh, one place, by the way, just to kind of wrap this all together, that the priests that serve in the temple are silent. They don't speak while they're performing their duties. I don't know, maybe John's alluding to that with the silence. But they're out there, they're making the sacrifice. It was appointed that one of the priests would take some of the fire from that altar and would bring it into the temple. Now into the temple, you would have a holy place, kind of a general area. You'd have a holier place, which would be right in front of the holiest place, okay? The holiest place, separated by the veil, there's the thing. The outer court kind of thing, kind of in the building, the knot would be the holy place. The inner court would be the holier place, if you will. In the holier place, right on the outside, right where this table is, okay? Imagine an altar about 18 by 18, okay? About 36 inches high, so maybe about here-ish. And it's called the altar of incense. So, you have this pan. It's bronze in the tabernacle. It was gold in Solomon's temple. I don't know what it was in the second temple. can't remember. But anyway, they would take it full of some coals and a little bit of fire from that altar. And they would come and they'd put it on this altar. And they would offer incense. And as they're offering incense, they are praying to God. They're praying to God for the people of Israel. They're praying to God he would forgive them of their sins, that that he would draw his people to himself, that he would save them from whatever oppression they were dealing with or whatever the circumstance was. He, He would pray for the nation of Israel as he's doing this. Perhaps it was the only thing you heard in the temple ground, you know, inside the temple would have been this. Zachariah is doing this when he sees the angel in Luke 1, okay? What's interesting to me about all this is that John is seeing this happen for real. You see, the temple, the tabernacle, was a shadow. It was a type. It was a representation on earth of something that's going on in heaven. John gets a glimpse at the actual offering. He has this pan, this almost bowl-type thing that's full of this fire, incense, with prayers of the saints. And he is presenting it on this altar of incense before God, not before a seat upon which God would come down once a year, which would hold the Ten Commandments and all of that. No, he's actually in at the throne of God presenting this. That must have been an incredible sight for John. He is offering this, and as he's offering it, the aroma, the smell of praise wafting up before God. It's a beautiful picture because we are such bad prayers. We're terrible at it. We can't even talk to God right without needing a lot of help. And God is still finding that the prayers of his saints are acceptable. It's not that the angel is making them acceptable. That's not what he's doing. He's just presenting them. God's finding them acceptable because he's finding us acceptable. And in that day, the prayers of the saints going up before God pleasing to him. It's an incredible picture. Do you see now why I'm only taking five verses? 
The symbolism is so rich, but it doesn't end there. You see, he gets these, these prayers and, and the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints, verse 4, rose before God from the hand of the angel. God takes them in. And just like a pleasant aroma, God is pleased with the prayers of his people. If the story ended there, that'd be a happy ending. But it doesn't. Something else happens. Verse 5. Here, let me read it and, and then we'll. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. I mentioned what they would do. They took the fire from the altar of sacrifice. They would bring it into the altar of incense and offer the incense. That's what the priests were to do. Now he takes the fire and he throws it at earth. If the prayers of God's saints are acceptable in his sight, why is he throwing the fire at the earth? I guess there's two ways to look at this. One way is that the saints have asked for vindication. And now God is starting to deliver that. One, one commentator wrote it this way. He said that there's something sacrificial in our prayer. There's something about our prayer that is a sacrifice. And that God will take our prayers in some sort of way, use them to fulfill His purpose. And in this case, He's taking the prayer of those saints those martyrs that have prayed for vindication and he's using them to bring about that vindication. That, that's one way to look at it. Another way to look at it is once he's offered the prayers to the saints, there's nothing left on that altar but the remnant of sacrifice. I think he takes fire from the altar after offering the praise because there's nothing else worth giving God. God told, well, in fact, um, Samuel was... Saul was disobedient to God and through the prophet Samuel, God tells Saul to obey is better than sacrifice. Time after time after time we read in the scripture of God not wanting the sacrifice nearly as much as the obedience. And it's almost like, I can almost picture it's like the people of earth are offering some sort of vain sacrifice, something that is supposed to pass off as acceptable to God, but it's not acceptable to God. Maybe it's a sacrifice of works where I'm trying to do what I can do and I'm not really relying on God. I'm not really putting faith in God. I'm just going to go to church. I'm going to be a good person. I'm going to do X, Y, Z, fill out my checklist and that will be acceptable to God. Maybe it's a sacrifice of actual sacrifices. Maybe it's a sacrifice of real animals or even worse, people. People have done this sort of thing throughout history. And even today, there are still people who are doing this sort of thing. Killing other people in the name of God. As though it's a sacrifice to Him. It's still happening. And it may not be like some Indian culture. It may be an unborn child. It may be someone who has been born that's being trafficked. I'm in Birmingham has an epidemic of sex trafficking. Birmingham, not England. Birmingham, Alabama. Guys, don't think this isn't happening now. Don't think this is just a third world issue. But what I'm telling you is people are trying to justify their actions in all sorts of different ways and all sorts of terrible things. And God throws it back at them and says, I don't want that garbage. And in doing so, brings wrath upon the earth. I think he's throwing 
the stuff that ain't acceptable to God. And he's just returning it to earth saying, this is the result of what you've done. I also think it's all interesting. The sacrifice of the altar is what's used to burn the incense of praise and prayer. If we want to approach God, it cannot just be with words. It must be with sacrifice. And, and I hate to say this, but far too often I've climbed off the altar unscathed. Far too often I've let my own comfort, my own well-being get in the way of my service for God. My sacrifice. This is, I think, what Paul is talking about when he says in Romans chapter 12, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. He's saying you shouldn't be dying for God, though the time might come for that. He's saying you should be a living sacrifice. Now, living sacrifices, raise of hands. How many of you look forward to living through your sacrifice? It's not pleasant. I don't even want eye drops in my eyes. I don't want it to hurt when you put a little bit of rubbing alcohol or peroxide on a wound. I'm a baby. <laughs> I admit this. How much harder is it for me to kill my desires, my natural tendencies to sin? How much harder is it for me to be the sacrifice, the sacrifice that lives through it, but that's forever changed by it? I find it interesting that the coals of the offer of sacrifice are the ones that allow, that, that burn the prayers into that pleasing aroma, that make those prayers come to life in the nostrils of God. And it's that same fire when there's nothing else left to burn, nothing else worth giving God. It's those same fires of inappropriate inappropriate, unauthorized sacrifice that result in judgment. When he threw the censer at the earth, the Bible says there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning and an earthquake. It's almost like the earth said, don't throw it at me, I didn't do anything. The earth receiving the pain, enduring the wrath of God. There's one day when God's going to make it all right. But unfortunately, there's a lot of wrath first. We're about to see seven angels with seven trumpets. They're about to blow and the judgments are going to begin. I want to make a quick note before we dismiss on this. Some think that these judgments are kind of the same thing, just told from different perspectives. And there seems to be kind of a cycle to this. You're going to see a lot of the same things over and over again with the trumpets and the bowls. You're going to see some of these same things keep recurring. And so maybe in a way it kind of is cyclical. But in a way there's something new, something different each time. Years and years and years, decades and centuries and millennia of man being bad. I've been reading um, in my Bible, Bible reading, I've started the book of Judges. And in the book of Judges, there's this pattern. Israel is doing okay. And then they start messing up. They start worshiping other gods. They forget the Lord. And they go down, down, down until the point where they are oppressed by someone else. Maybe it's Moab. Maybe it's Midian. Maybe it's Ammon. Maybe it's the Philistines. Somebody is oppressing them. 
and they're crying out to God for help. And God sends a judge who helps them turn back toward God. And it will say something like that Israel followed the Lord all the days that so-and-so lived. And maybe if they're really good, even all the days that the judges or the elders who worked with them lived. And it's right back down again. Every time they keep coming around, and every single time they do, they get further and further away. They never quite get back up. The judge that rescues them never is quite as holy. They never quite get as close to God as they were the first time, and they keep spiraling out of control. Maybe there's a little bit of that in Revelation where these judgments systematically work out the sin, undoing these years and decades and centuries and millennia of spiraling out of control until finally men is brought back up close to God again. Maybe there's a little bit of that. Maybe, maybe that's how, maybe that's how God has to deal with us. He gives us a new nature when we're born in Christ. We're a new creation, but it's a lot of work to do to clean us up. So maybe it's just little by little, bit by bit, chisel by chisel, that God finally working, working, working until He's finally got us where we need to be. We're going to be talking about a lot of things and some of them are going to be scary. Some of them are going to be confusing. Some of them, you're going to have more questions than I'm going to answer. Um, believe me, I'm facing a lot of questions. But I do know this. When God exercises His judgment on the earth, it will be complete. And when God brings His glory, it will be glorious. But for now, I think it's time for us to take our own little silence. Father, help us Help this word sink deep into us. Help us to remember things like that you you smell our praise. The aroma of our prayers is being lifted up before you all night, all day. You don't take a break. You don't get tired or weary or need rest. You don't get sick and tired of hearing us complain about the same things, pray about the same ordeals. Father, I pray that we would be acceptable to you, not because of what we do, but because of what you've done. May our sacrifices, may our prayers, may may the things that we do be pleasing to you. May all of our actions and our words be acceptable. Father, for those who don't know you, we pray that you tear your wrath for a little while. Pray that you hang on. Give us time to do the work that we need to do. Don't send judgment yet. There's too many that don't know you. There's too many that haven't believed in Jesus. But God, give us the urgency to work because our days are numbered. Whether you take five days or five millennia to do what you're going to do, we don't have much time on this earth. So God, help us to use it wisely and to bring you glory. Father, I pray, pray that you would be lifted high in this place by every single one of us, that you would receive the glory you're due. In Christ's name, amen. We will see you again very soon. Um, trying to think if there's anything I need to tell you all before you all go. I don't think so. Okay. Get out of here. We'll see you Wednesday, if not before. <laughs> we are dismissed. Well, I try to, I, 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 I try to leave you, I try to leave you spellbound. <laughs>